Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Flushem and Dustin podcast. This episode of the Flushem and Dustin podcast is brought to you by Hunt Ready, a quality made upland vest sourced and handcrafted here in the U.S. of A. It's extremely lightweight and super customizable. Nick and I both wear a Hunt Ready vest while out in the field and both of our vests are set up differently. It has enough storage on it to be able to carry extra clothes, extra food, and other gear that you feel may be necessary while out hunting. Go check out Hunt Ready at huntready, that's H-U-N-T-R-E-D-I, dot com to learn more about their vest. Welcome back to another Flush and Dustin podcast. We're excited to have everybody come back and listen. Tonight we have special guest. He is the traveling wing shooter, David King, out of Missouri. Uh, super excited to have him on. He's been around bird dogs for over 35 years. Um, his dad had bird dogs, and he got him into it. And um, so, a lot of experience, a lot of uh, good stories about to come at you. Uh, but David, if you can give an introduction to yourself, that'd be great. Well, I'm David King. I'm semi-retired. And as he said, I've had dog Tyler set up for over 35 years. Uh, right now I've got three English pointers. I love to travel around the United States and hunt different upland birds over and shoot them over point on my dogs running three English pointers. And, uh, I looked it up before I came on tonight. I've been to 10 different States now. Nice. How many, uh, do you know them all? Did you write them down? I wrote them down. I've been to Arizona, <laughs> Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Texas, and Wyoming. Nice. Uh, out of those 10 states, do you have a favorite? When the bird population was strong in Missouri, I would say hunting bobwhite quail in Missouri was my favorite. But as the times have changed, I like to go to North Dakota or Montana, get up on the prairie, let them field trial bred pointers run and hunt sharp tail grouse. I love seeing them dogs out ahead working in that low cover and sharp tail seems to be a dog bird. Yep, yep. Uh, so you've been, we'll, we'll kind of switch gears and talk to talk about the dogs. And uh, so have you been around field trials for a, a long time then? Um, I like to watch some trials. There are not many locally anymore. I, I ran trials for about a 10-year period, mostly walking where the handler was walking. Yeah. And ran the field trials. And I, I believe keeping the genetics up close in our hunting dogs and top genetics. Yeah. What, uh, what years did you run the uh, the field trials? From about, were they always with English setters? English pointers from about English pointers, yeah. to 98. I said 10 years, a little less. Yeah. Nice. What got you into it? Um, I had a trainer I was using and he was pushing me to have better dogs and be worried more about the dog work than just going out and seeing how many birds you could kill. I was a young guy and he was trying to change my mindset a little bit. And I ended up starting a family and working some weekends or I'd have kept trialing longer. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it probably gets pretty tough once you have kids. And did you have to travel around a lot for that? We had a lot of local trials back then. If I were to field trial now, I'd have to travel quite a bit. Yeah. Especially yeah, for walking trials. Yeah. Did they, was there much horseback back when you did it or is that something a little bit newer? Um, there was horseback trials and I'd occasionally go ride and watch a dog. Just yeah. a dog or maybe even a dog I was considering to get pups out of. Yep. Nice. So let's talk about what got you into bird hunting. It sounds like your dad used to be big into bird dogs. So let's, uh, let's talk about your history there and kind of what led up to you having your own dogs. And uh, we'll keep going from that. Well, my dad was kind of a no-frills conservative guy, and he didn't do anything for himself or anything for fun except hunt Bob White Quail in North Missouri. <laughs> yeah. And he was very well known. He was very successful. He always had a pair of dogs. He could really walk. He could really shoot. 
and he was very motivated. And we always had quail. It seemed like, you know, we were eating quail all the time in the fall and winter. And then in high school, I played a lot of basketball. And so I, they didn't really want me out doing a lot of hunting, keep my energy. And back then, now I have trouble keeping weight off. Back then, I had trouble <laughs> weight on. I so think I that, that happens with age. It has. And I didn't really start hunting much until college. And then about my senior year of college, I got my own bird dog, uh, English pointer, German short hair cross. There was a lot of great dogs like that in our area. And that's yep. kind of what got me started. And when I got started, I couldn't hardly hit one. And <laughs> I could shoot a basketball. I couldn't shoot that shotgun. The red yeah. it motivated me to get better. And then I wanted to be a better hunter. Then I got realizing the better dogs led to that. And then the field trials and guiding hunts and just kind of spiraled from there. Yeah. And I, I struggled this year shooting. What's uh, what's some tips that you got for getting better? The tips I would have is, one, get the ammunition you're going to shoot, the gun and chokes you're going to shoot. Put it on a pattern board. See if they're, what pattern's the best out of your gun. Get that figured out. Then go shoot some blue rock. And you don't have to go to sporting clays or a trap club. We've got a thrower we set up on the back side of the farm, and we go out there and shoot and just and practice different angles and trajectory like your, the game birds you're getting ready to hunt. Yep. Nice. So uh, do you remember anything specific about the the bird dogs that your dad had when you were growing up or um, anything of that? Well, starting in elementary school, I was a designated poop scooper and sometimes got <laughs> to feed them. And I can still remember I was in high school once and I can show you the place 40 plus years ago where I shot my first Bob White quail over point. Oh, it's really? Miles from where I grew up and I can take you right to the spot. Man, and that's... He had a lot of nice dogs. And then later, I've been real fortunate. I feel like I've had four dogs. That, I've had a lot of nice dogs, but I've had four exceptional dogs. And then at, toward the end, he had a English pointer is Miller Silver Bullet bred. He called Patch, and I can tell a few stories on Dad and Patch. Oh yeah, let's hear him. Well, we used to. He lives we where we grew. I grew up. We had a ditch right in the back of the house. There might be quail on it. And across the road, there was an old brushy pond and kind of a crop field. And one day, Dad and I was out there, and there was a path going up the hill behind the mailbox and through the woven wire fence. And I said, Dad, what kind of animal you think's going through, going up there and made that path? He said, I think we can figure it out. And he kind of let it go. Pretty soon he said, hang on, I'll be back in a minute. And I'm standing there in the front yard. Here comes old Patch flying by, hits that path, shoots right through the woven wire fence, heads toward the pond, disappears. Dad comes walking around the house. And he says, yeah, we better go over there and flush his birds for him and bring him home. So we cross the fence and go about 200 yards to this old farm pond. There's Patch on point. And Ed goes, yeah, there ought to be about nine. He went in, flushed him. I counted him. There was nine quail. He caught him, petted him up, said, we better get him home now. We went back home, went to the backyard. Patch was sitting in the pen. Jeez. He, that path was Patch knew those quail were there. And yeah. he was running up there pointing them every chance he could. He, he was crazy. really a good dog. Yeah. I wish I had him now up in Montana and North Dakota and places because he ran effortlessly and he was so smart. That's awesome. Yeah, that sounds like a, a fun dog to have been able to see and watch. And I, I tell you another story. We're out in Kansas and dad always shot a 20 gauge auto loader. And then toward the end of his life, he's gone now, but he was probably 70, 72. He started carrying a 20 gauge side to side. And we got out to Kansas where there was a mix of pheasant and quail. And my brother kept telling me, look at that shotgun. Look at that shotgun. I said, I've seen it. He said, no, you haven't. <laughs> I went over there. He had a 28 gauge. Just, it was the same exact model as his 20. Yeah. So I said, this looks like a cork gun. Like you'd shoot a wine cork. <laughs> he said, oh, 28 gauge is a Bob White quail gun. And I'm a Bob White quail hunter. I said, what are you going to do if we get out here? And there's a pheasant gets up. He said, well, I don't see that that pheasant head's much smaller than a Bob White. I think I'll be all right. <laughs> he pulls out a box of shells, three-quarter ounce of eight skeet load, and has oh, his geez. egg gauge. So 
me and my brother Doug and our buddy Darren, we all go hunting. We get in some Bob Whites and we're kind of getting ready to switch fields. And Dad said, I'm going to run this other field and you guys finish this and we'll meet you right here. So we hear a pop in the distance later and we're all laughing. I said, that must have been that cork gun, that 28 <laughs> make any noise with those target loads we go back and meet him by the road and patch is sitting at his feet and he's got a rooster pheasant in his hand <laughs> and he said you boys do any good i said no not really i said what have you been doing he goes i've, I've been shooting pheasants <laughs> and he goes patch points them i shoot them that's just how it's supposed to be <laughs> that's awesome that 28 gauge proved you guys wrong yeah, he did. He, he was pretty subtle about it, but we got a lot of digs about that for the next several years. Oh, I bet. You guys ought to get a 28 gauge. <laughs> Do you use a 20 gauge yourself? or I use a 20 gauge over and under SKB, Japanese made, and I carried an 1100 light 20 Remington forever. Nice. Which the last eight or 10 years. Yeah, those are good. Those are good guns. Uh, so you... You got your first bird dog when you were in college. Um, when was it that you really started diving deep into um, more of the breeding and getting, you know, more high caliber um, dogs? Well, I started working some with a trainer who lived about an hour away and you can read all you want, watch videos, YouTube, and I encourage all that, but there's nothing better than getting beside a trainer and working with him. Yep. And I'd go up there and help him do some of the manual labor, then we'd work dogs together. And he had several champions coming through his kennel and that he was working, and there was one in particular that really caught my attention. And a local guy bred to him and had a litter out of him. So in 1991, I went and bought a pup out of this dog and I started field trialing her some in 92, was winning quite a bit. I started getting a lot more particular on my dog's performance. I started getting a lot more particular on the bloodlines and the breeding, and that's it all started with her. Yeah. What was that dog's name? We called her Blair, and her registered name was Chiefs Blazing Blair, and she was out of a, a national bird hunter, national champion called Seabross Alpha Chief, who was the son of the Hall of Fame Miller's Chief. Of the feral oh, nice. dogs. and That's i try awesome. to I've got three dogs now and i'm not bragging but two of them are out of champions the third one that's not both of his grandparents were champions i try to keep the genetics up close to give myself every advantage i can yep do you do any breeding yourself or are you just mainly looking for the dogs that have the genetics dad would breed litters and then later on i went to breeding litters and i've had three or four but where we live, there's just not much of a market right now. It hadn't been for a while when the, the birds kind of nosedive, you know, the trials kind of went away, the puppy market went away, everything. Yeah. So yeah, now I got to know some breeders and some guys with stud dogs and buy them from them. Yep. So you, so you got started back in 91 was when you really started diving into it. Did you, uh, when did you pick up, you know, traveling and, um, did you travel and trial or was that kind of different times of your life? Well, the birds had been going down for years, but about 2000, the birds really started nosediving. And, um, we, we went to Texas, my brother, my dad and I, and hunted down in West Texas on a ranch a couple of years. And we liked that. Then we went to um, South Dakota and hunted up there. And we, we hunted one day with labs and springers, but we spent a couple of days with our pointers. And just three of us and man we love that and then we got to know some people in kansas and going out there and traveling i'd say some of that started in the late not mid to, more like the late 90s and then here a few years ago i was able to get semi-retired and by myself or you know i had my own schedule and we really picked it up nice how many how many places you go this past year well we went up in the north dakota montana area being careful not to hotspot <laughs> there in September two years ago and had a nice hunt and I had trouble getting around any hunts. I mean, I didn't see many. And when I did, I was just never at the right place. And we went up there this September and had some good luck, maybe better luck on the Hungarian partridge than we did the shark tail. Nice. Had a ball with that. 
and had my three pointers. And my friend Rich has a French Brittany, a young dog he took up there. And you could just see her develop on all those wild bird contacts up there. It was neat. And then I hunted some in uh, Missouri. And then I made, I think, three trips out to Kansas this year. Oh, nice. How far is uh, Kansas from you? The last place I went to last week's season was about four hours. Oh, that's not too bad. I went out there a little ways. And then the other ones were about three and a half to four. One was three and a half. One was four and a half. Yeah, that's not bad. This was uh, – <clears throat> Nick and I went to Kansas for the first time this past year. And we're definitely – definitely gonna be going back that's a fun place and it's just i like the i like the ground or the grass it's a lot different than it is here in iowa it's a lot easier to walk you know and for you guys you know i can definitely see where a pointing dog is has way bigger advantage in that type of country just like when we went out to wyoming than what a a flushing dog does just the amount of ground they can cover compared to and you can just let them go you know where here in Iowa, you know, I think flushing dog works pretty well with some of the tall CRP grasses and whatnot that we have. But yeah, when we were in Kansas, it's like, all right, a good pointing dog would would have definitely been nice to have. Different horses for different courses. And yeah. And it's got a pretty good lab, a nice lab. And we hunt her with some of my broke pointers. Yeah. We get up and like you're saying in the big grass or somewhere, my dog's pointing, he'd come in and flush them and my dogs will stay broke. And that's different and you have to have the right dogs, but that's fun. Oh yeah. Yeah. That would be fun to see, fun to be part of. Um so you had let's see. So you started with the trials in ninety one and then you started traveling. How has so you've always been around big running dogs, right? Well, my dad was ahead of his time in a lot of ways. He would have an English pointer, then he'd have a German short hair, and they really complemented each other. So I learned that easy early on, and not only in range, but a lot of times they hunt differently and hunt different patterns and different areas, and they make a really good combination. So I've been, and he had two or three Britneys growing up too. So I've been behind it all. Yeah, but so. A lot of the dogs, though, you know, are I'm guessing they're probably working a couple hundred yards out in like the the open country or even yeah. bigger, obviously. Um, but when you started, uh, you've been around the the game for a while. They probably what was it like? I'm guessing you're probably using GPS collars now. On I them. am now. Um, how has that? What was it like before that, and how has that transition? Do you feel like it's been like a huge night and day difference, a savior? I mean, what's your take the on it? The biggest changes that's helped the bird dog pointing dog world, in my opinion, since I started is Onyx mapping and GPS collars for my dogs. If you haven't lost a pointing dog, you haven't hunted a lot. And that brings a lot of heartache and a lot of worry. And I've always been lucky enough to get them back, but I've lost them from 10 minutes to a couple days. Oh, and man. So the first thing we used them for was get our dog's dog recovery. But now I've gotten a little better, and there's people a lot better than I am with them. Find them on point. You're running down yeah. some trails and on, you got some big grass, and it goes off. Then you can go to them and find them. And you, you, we're not losing dogs, but we're killing more birds, too. So yeah. that, that's been a godsend for somebody like me yes yeah what was it what was it like hunting without them i mean how did uh you let your dog go i mean what'd you do to did you have bells on them how'd you find them you know i know people that ran bells i never liked bells at one point i'd run a beeper i didn't like that but i got the newer ones i could set up with a point only mode yeah so ran off somewhere and buried up if i got within earshot i could find them Another thing, I like a dog in control, too. But with the GPS, I'll let it roll a little bit more, you know, up <laughs> out in the plains of western Kansas or Nebraska. Yep. It's been great, like I said, not just for the recovery, but finding them on point. And I'm sure there were times, you know, we lost and they busted birds or we wasted a lot of time and a lot of footsteps looking for them. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because that'd be the hardest part. You get one out there three, four hundred yards, you know, and... <laughs> takes you a while to one if you're using the beeper to get any earshot of that beeper and then 
yeah, if the birds are still there when you get there. I let them run bigger today than I did in the old days simply because of the GPS technology. Yeah. How far did you kind of let them roam back before you had GPS? I'd get a little nervous. They got much past 200 yards. Yeah. And now maybe 350. It depends a lot now where I'm hunting. In the hills of North Missouri, we're hunting creeks and ditches and things. And it's hilly. They don't run as much, you know, obviously, as they do somewhere shorter grass and more open cover. Yeah, for sure. No, that makes that makes sense. Um, and you mentioned Onyx Hunt. Obviously, back in the day, you know, when you were looking for public ground, you have to use a plat map or um, how'd you guys find public land back then? Well, back then, we hunted about all private ground. Yeah, that's probably true, yeah. Four birds and we could hardly shoot or have time to hunt in a season I, i've been literal and then um we had plat maps for um private ground for two counties and we carried them around in the truck <laughs> all something that looked good we dealt through and figured out who owned it and tried to contact the landowner um now about in all my travels i'm hunting mostly like 90 percent public ground that onyx is is a godsend there too deal oh, yeah. see where you're at and what it is and is it accessible and that type of thing? It's great. Yeah. Because did you do, I'm, I imagine traveling to a different state back before Onyx had to just be, that had to be super hard to do. When I was doing, I wasn't going very far. Kansas, Weehaw land, and I knew the farmers. That was about it. And then when I, and I had been to Iowa and some things. But that was about it before the Onyx. I had been to Texas, but that was another huge ranch, and the ranch hand took us around. Yeah. But the Onyx has been all these other places, Arizona, Wyoming, the Dakotas, Montana. Yeah. How has uh how has your has your bird hunting style changed since you've since you've done more traveling? Have you you know, do you do you camp when you go? Do you Stay in Airbnb. How do you how do you go about it? We stay in an Airbnb. Some we'll stay in a motel. I'm not really on that air mattress. I'm too old and too <laughs> on an air mattress. But yeah. uh, it's a real challenge for the dogs. That's one of the things I like. You switch from where I live and go three or four states over. You're having a new terrain, new birds, new everything. I, I love that. Um, one of the things that's changing is November first. Is when the Missouri plan opens. So I have to have my dogs ready, you know, six weeks, eight weeks earlier. So I have to start conditioning a little earlier in the summer, get up early, do it at night, that type of thing to have the dogs ready. Yep. And uh, how many, what, uh, what's, are you running the, the new Garmin system or what are you running? I've got an older Garmin system. The Garmin. Um, do you know about on average what your dogs are? speed is that they're running about mile mileage that they're usually getting like it, when you're up in the Dakotas on Sharpies and Huns compared to I don't. South on Bob quites. A lot of guys do. I, I don't. And I typically though, I'll have three dogs. I try to run two at a time. And every time we move a field, rest a dog, rotate a dog in. I most, I could use it for more um, slightly technology. <laughs> disadvantage so uh, if i can find my dog on point or get, and get it home at night right now i'm calling that good i need to up my game on that i know that yeah yeah comes with comes with practice right yeah <laughs> oh, that's that's funny so you've uh how many dogs have you said that you've had in total do you think over the years I don't, 12 or 15 i'm not one of <laughs> dog that really suit me i move it and get another one yeah they still, uh, you know, they they're doing their job. Yep. So what uh, what are some of the key traits that you're looking for uh, when you're ch selecting uh, the breeding that you're going to go with, and then some of the key traits that you're looking for uh, to keep the dog on your string? I'm, I'm looking for brains number one, <clears throat> and then I want a good nose. And then they got to be physical. Those physical structure has to be correct where they move right. And we're not going to have any problems there. You can normally develop an eye to see that. And then once I pick 
a litter of pups I want, then I picked a specific pup out of the litter. I want that dog to run out there on its own, find the birds and point them. They got and a lot of the, some of that we can teach them with experience, but a lot of that's inborn, you know, that's there. Yeah. So that's the big thing they got to do as far as getting them to back retrieving things is super important to me, but we can teach them most of that, but can they run out there and find that bird, stick it on its own and can they keep doing it? You know, 30, 40 minutes, if they're done, they don't have any stamina. I mean, I don't have any use for that. Or if they start showing me, they don't have a very good nose or they fight or they don't have a lot of style, they can go down the road. Yeah. Have you, do you feel like you've, uh, sent a lot of dogs down the road in your day or is not too many? A few. I'm doing less and less now, I think, because I'm getting to know the dogs better that I purchase. Yeah. And I'm buying like, um, the dogs I've been buying, the guy guides some hunts, the last couple, he field trials some, but he hunts a lot of wild birds. So they're proven three ways. I feel like. Yep. Yeah, that's huge. Um, do you do you ever go watch the the dogs that are going to be bred before you choose that litter, or is it more of just through conversations with the breeder of how well they do? And I like to see them run. I want to see them work myself. And then um, an odd thing I used to do, I like pointers. Sometimes I'd ask a setter guy what to what pointers he liked. And a lot of times he had a more objective point of view. And I like that too. I try to get all the homework I can on the dog. And, and the female is hugely important too. A lot of people forget that. Yeah. Not only her yeah. genetics, but you know, her attitude. She's raising the pups first eight, nine weeks. It's about all they know. So you yeah. want a minded, good bitch dog in there with them. Yeah, that makes, that is actually a really good point. She's their, She's their go-to for those first few weeks to get them going. Yep. So out of some of your dogs, do you have any, obviously you you mentioned you have some really good dogs right now, but out of all of them that you've had, do you have a few that really stick out? Um, The first dog I used to field trial, the Blair dog, was really good, really tremendous dog, not really a weakness. And I've had some good ones between but I've got one right now we call Scout. And I registered King's Voodoo Child after Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> and um, I went way up Northeast Iowa. I mean, I was up there to buy her. She'll be as a puppy and she'll be 10 years old, March 7th. Oh, nice. And she's one of the best bird finders I've ever walked behind. Not just me, anybody's dogs. And just a tremendous bird finder. And then she does everything else she's supposed to do too. And I would say that's the two best dogs I've owned. They were different, hard to compare in some ways, but those two really stick out. Yeah. Do you have uh, any good stories with those two that you can think of? Scout's the one that really, um, Blair introduced me to better dogs, better training, better genetics. I met a lot of people through the field trial game. I met breeders and that boosted everything I was doing with the bird dogs. That was my yeah. first English pointer. Scout's my last really good one. I got two younger dogs I like, but they're not like her. And uh, she's the one that would run off and I'd lose her not, and not be ran off, just <laughs> might be clump or behind something and start using that GPS. Yeah. Find her the weeds and find her here or there and learn to use it and read and, and do that. And one of her strengths is we went to Western Nebraska and it was 90 degrees and she's pointing prairie chicken. She'd never seen a prairie chicken. She never bumped a prairie chicken. She pointed everyone she came across, took her to Wyoming. She's pointing huns, sage grouse. She's a machine on Sharptown, Montana. Not my words. Other people call her the queen of the prairie. Nice. She points woodcock. We've killed limits of pheasant in Nebraska. It doesn't matter what bird's been in front of her. She runs out there and just starts pointing them, and she points plenty of them. That's awesome. That's got to make you feel pretty awesome when the other people part, are saying she's the queen of the prairie. It does. It, it, I've got a lot of time in her. I did a lot. I spent a lot of time looking for that bloodline, and then I made a big trip for her. Did a lot of time in her developing her. I've hunted her all over, 
the sad thing, arthritis and things are starting to set in. I'm starting to lean on these young dogs a little more. Yeah, because you said she's 10 years old now. She's 10, but she's had some arthritis in her front ankle joints come on the last two or three years and she's really starting to age she's an old 10 yeah That's how long hard. do you, most of the those pointers um how long do you what age do you usually hunt them till or does it just depend on the Lucky, dog a lot of times they're going pretty good at 11 or 12 start yeah. seeing a little bit of slowdown at 10 but i started seeing a little bit in her at eight yeah and we use cold laser therapy. My vet does on her. And I What's use that? medication. I use glucosamine. I mean, I'm doing everything I can to keep this dog on the ground. Yeah. What's, my, uh, what's cold laser therapy? She's got like a laser she uses on horses and dogs. And she puts it right on where their injury is. She holds it for so long. And then she says, I think it deals with the inflammation and some of the things going on in the soft tissue. Huh. And she uses it a lot on horses. But I, I take this old dog in there preseason, and I get a couple tune-ups in the middle of the year just trying <laughs> to get her going. Yeah, just like an old engine. Got yep. to keep it tuned up. Exactly. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So obviously you've been you've been to many states, been around the country bird hunting. You mentioned before that you know you really enjoy the Dakotas and Montana area and whatnot. What are some of your? Still, let's start with one of your favorite stories, and we'll get we'll get into some more from there. Well, the toughest hunt I ever had. We were in Arizona, and we got down there and we're hunting scale quail, and I had a little more success. Me and the boys did on that than I thought we might. Then we got on uh, gambles, and they gave me the blues. I mean, I, really, <laughs> I struggled with them. But I don't know if it was the rocky terrain or what. I had broken in boots. I'd been hunting, but my feet got tore up and were blistering. And on the last day, my feet were blistered and were open, and I, I was bleeding in spots, and we hadn't been to hunt Merns yet. And they were saying there's no way because we were going on a mountain, and that on the side of the mountain would be rocks the size of softballs. And I said, <laughs> you know, I, I've got to try them while I'm here. I may never be back. And then I'd heard Merns were a, a good dog bird. So we drive 11 miles from the Mexico border and here's a mountain. And they said, we're going up here. I could barely walk. And I got on the side of the mountain. I couldn't put one foot in front of the other between kind of the fear of falling and my feet being tore up. My brother hung with me and we got up there a long ways. I'm thinking, how am I getting back to the truck? We come to a little opening and a bird got up and I shot it. About time I shot, I saw something out of the corner of my eye. The dog was on point, and at the sound of my shot, it got up. I killed it too. I said, "Boy, I'm done for this trip." I got yeah. the I got the Arizona Slam, and they came over and said, "Every you've shot all roosters, all three species. You've got the Grand Slam." I said, "I've never been in this much foot pain, and it wasn't for my brother <laughs> encouraging me, I'd have never got up there." Oh man, how long did it take you to recover from that? I got home soaked in the Epsom salts for a few days and wore sandals and ended up being okay. But I've got Merns, Gambles, and uh, Scaled Quail on a really cool mountain on a piece of dried cactus I carried out of the desert hanging in my Oh, game. I bet that's super cool. It's, it's extra special because I sacrificed and having my one and only brother there pushing me. Yeah, no, that's a really cool story. It has pain and triumph and... You know, the angst to just keep on going after it, you know, and yeah, it's, it's crazy where some of this, you know, we started expanding outside of Iowa hunting, uh, upland birds recently. And it's, it's crazy where all these different upland species and all the different terrains you can come across and where all these different upland birds live. And it's super cool to see. Do you have a, one of your favorite uh, landscape locations that you like to go, not hotspot, obviously, but like states or um, just out of the landscape that you really enjoy? I saw a lot of places I really liked in Wyoming. And I think Wyoming sometimes a little underappreciated upland state. But yeah. there's a certain place in Montana 
and the sun sets there, there's no place prettier in my my mind in, in the world. Really? And a lot of times at the end of the day, we put the dogs up and crack a top shelf bourbon and throw a chunk of ice in it and just stand there and watch it for a while. Yeah. What's your favorite bourbon? Buffalo Trace. Mm. That is some good stuff. Well, I like. My, my wife always makes fun of me because if we go out to go out to eat or something, I always just ask for a bourbon or a whiskey straight on the rocks. Don't get anything with it. And she's like, "How can you just sit there and drink that?" That's she's like, "That's gross." Like I just enjoy the. It's just something about it. I just like it. I've I've got a bottle of Bird Dog whiskey, but it's the ten year old reserve that my brother bought me when I retired. And it's keep has an engraving about hunting and good dogs. And a lot of times we pack that on the trip. Yeah. The the day we'll get three glasses out or a couple glasses out <clears throat> toast. I mean, that's part of the whole thing. You know, it's not just oh, yeah. watch yep. the dogs, see the new landscape, enjoy the company of each other and toast the sunset. Oh yeah, for sure. I've never had the, the 10 year old bird dog. I've had the regular bird dog and I really like that, but. I'll have to give that a uh, that ten year old stuff a try. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's pretty good. So what's uh if you can think of a story, what is one of your favorite? I mean, you you just told a super good one with the uh, the different quail that you that you're able to bag. But do you have a story of maybe one of your favorite? points that you had over one of your dogs um or one of maybe your favorite bird that you shot um with one of your dogs i've got a pair of bob white quail mounted in my basement and i was hunting with a good friend of mine several years ago and we got in a covey and, and we each shot a bird and we got looking the bird everything we were shooting seemed to be a little bigger and we went down through there and shot a few more and I took a hen and a rooster quail out of that. And they were noticeably bigger than the other coveys we had seen that day. And this guy, his name is Kevin's a good friend of mine. And we were on his farm gunning together. And those are the two I took to the taxidermy and I had a really cool mount done. And the rooster's got his mouth open like it's crowing. And when I look at that mount, I think about Kevin and I hunting on Kevin's farm. It's a special. Piece. Yeah. That's really cool. Do you, uh, what uh out of all the do you know how many different species of birds you've you've taken i'm not sure um what's been the hardest one outside of the feet one the hardest one sometimes my first prairie chickens weren't that hard but every time i've hunted prairie chickens since then <laughs> it's been tough Really? A, a personal vendetta almost with huns. And I had Hungarian partridges in Montana the first year I was mentioning. I could never get around and get a shot. I didn't see very many. They only went to Wyoming, and it was somewhat the same deal. Then old scout finally <laughs> went to pointing them, and I killed a couple, but that was about it. Now, last year, I got a little bit of revenge on the, on the Hungarians. But uh, one of the hardest things that was one I didn't get, we were hunting huns in Wyoming and uh, my buddy Rich knocked one down and we were headed up toward it and the old dog pointed and he was the only one close to the dog and we thought it was his crippled birds and he flushed and killed. I thought, what was that? And the old dog brought him back a chucker. Oh, a wild chucker in Wyoming and, and I had never seen one in the wild. And yeah. we never saw any more of the rest of the hunt. And we were looking, leaving way up on the mountain. We could see a covey. And it was running up the mountain. And I mean, it was a mountain. There was no way I was getting up there. And they were <laughs> at each other thinking about trying them. But they were smoking up the mountain. And I would think what I've seen, Chucker, would be the most difficult bird to hunt for me personally. Yeah. A lot of guys that we've had on, they tell us stories about them. It's, it's a different definitely a different hunt you know a lot the terrain's crazy the it's dangerous you know and just your elevation that you're climbing throughout the day it's it'd be fun to try that's for 
I'd love to try it some sometime, but I do think it's definitely a difficult bird to to hunt. Um, so how did so how how many states did you go to this past season again? Went to three this year. So was how how did your how'd your season turn out? I feel like my plains or prairie trip was very good. One of the better, probably the best prairie trip I've ever had. I felt like Missouri was poor. I'm not happy. And then <laughs> Kansas was so-so, but we knew the western part had suffered drought. And we yeah. pushed a lot of hunters back east, so you had more pressure on the walk-in from the central part on east. So, And we knew that headed in. Yeah, yeah the hard part when we got to Kansas was – just the amount of hayed public land, you know, there just seemed like everything that we'd, we'd pull up to a spot and it was hayed, pull up to the next spot, it was hayed, or, you know, trying to find stuff that was close to a good food source was a little difficult, but that also is what, what makes a hunt and what makes a trip a little more exciting and tough, you know, it's just not given to you. Yep. One of my favorite things in Kansas is to be, I'd rather hunt quail than pheasant, but I have hunted pheasant in six different states. So obviously I don't dislike them. But I yeah. love hunting those spots in Kansas or Southern Iowa where a dog goes on point and you don't know what's getting up. Yeah. You know, there'll be a quail or going to be some big Kaplan rooster come out. That's just a blast. Yeah. Yeah. That is super exciting. I love the one thing that I love about quail hunting is you don't have to, you can shoot both male and female. So when they get up, you can just shoot at them, you know, where pheasant, it's like, man, I just had a, a four hen flush. That was super cool to see, but I didn't get to do anything. You know, dogs right. are looking at you like, what the heck? Why didn't you get to, sh why didn't you shoot? You know, that's spreading them quail out and getting a point. Other dogs slide in and back. Maybe the other dog goes down and points the other dog backs. He just keep working back and forth like that. That's, I love that. And of course, you can get some of that in Kansas or Montana, even Wyoming, Arizona. You get other birds spread out. You get some of that. But yep. How do you feel the? So we're in the nineties. The bird numbers were pretty darn good, weren't they? They were still pretty good. Yeah. How do you feel from the nineties to obviously two thousands weren't good, and then how do you feel how the bird numbers are now, kind of traveling around and what you're seeing? I'm not seeing a lot of dip in some places. I felt like up on the prairie this year, by far the most hun Hungarian partridge. I'd seen the gray partridge and at the um, sharp tail holding their own. There's some still good places to pheasant hunt. I felt like it was a lot spottier in Kansas this year. But I'm putting that on the weather mostly. But yeah. Missouri has really gotten tough. We've had a real decline the last three years. That's one of the re that's what part of the reason I'm traveling. Yeah, you start traveling, you could quit, or you can start doing some habitat projects and work with pheasants forever and things. So we're doing habitat projects, and we're traveling, but we're not quitting. Yeah, what do you th what do you feel is is the downfall that Missouri's facing that's different compared to what it was in the past? We've got a lot of really good soil, and so they want to farm all they can of it. And then oh, a lot yeah. of the bigger farmers are getting their own track hose and bulldozers. And so not only is there less habitat, but we're getting a lot of habitat fragmentation. So you might have an island to cover, another island to cover, and it's not all hooked together where it provides everything a quail needs. Yeah. And I feel like we're missing something. There's either on the herbicide or the insecticide or something or something else we don't have figured out yet but that's like killing the quail you think or or, or maybe giving them trouble from when they're growing up from chicks I, i'm not yeah. sure we've been building covey headquarters on farms and i've helped people burn i plant food plots and i've been put i just planted some lespedeza yesterday and clover mix real light trying to get some brood rearing cover you know i'm trying i hate the guy that you run into the ball game or at the local Casey's and he just wants to complain and gripe about how there's no birds and then they're not doing anything about it. Yeah. Agreed. Birds or get in your truck and go somewhere. Yep. Do you, uh, are you part of like quail forever down there or 
I have been, and there's not a local chapter right now, but I was at the National Wild Turkey Federation banquet about a week ago. And I know I hunted a big public place in Missouri one time, and it had a lot of habitat work done and all. I got to the end and said it was partially sponsored by National Wild Turkey Federation. So I'm oh, wow. a supporter of any of that, NWTF, Pheasants Forever, Rough Grouse Society. We've got to do something. Yep. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned that you planted some stuff for broad rearing cover or brood rearing cover and yep. whatnot. Do you have, is it your own land or are you just helping people out or? I have helped people, but I live on a hundred acre farm. Oh, nice. Yeah. Can't beat that. I've got a few birds on it and then I've got it licensed for dog training and. Oh, really? Dishing my dogs and start my pups and, and where it's licensed, I can throw out a few birds work on their retrieving or yep. like that if I need to. What do you have to do in Missouri to, to get it licensed for dog training? I had to have 40 continuous acres. I think I paid $25 a year and a local conservation agent comes out and tries to discern, determine if it's an area that would be, that could be used for dog training. You know, is it just a soybean field or is it just a bare pasture? You know, that wouldn't work, but I've got some edges and some cover and okay. now that I'm in, I just re-enroll every year. Yep. Nice. How long have you had that for? I've had it licensed three or four years and i had another place licensed before i moved back home so so does that uh so that allows you to you can use any type of game bird for training then um i'm limited to bob white quail chucker partridge or ring neck pheasant so at least okay. the main ones yes yep nice and you don't have do you have to ban them or anything no and i'm lit but i'm limited to three shooters and limited to like the 40 acres, but that, that's okay. not a problem with what I'm doing. Yeah. Nice. How many, uh, do you raise your own birds then or? It, no. And that'd be a whole nother license. <laughs> oh, really? I, I do have some stickers on it for the birds, not really banded, but it's supposed to sticker them if somebody takes them off, but I typically just take them in and clean them and before long, you know, cook them. Yeah. Even so if you, I eat them. Yeah. So if you, uh, if you were to raise pheasants or quail or Hungarian partridge, you have to have a specific license in Missouri yeah. to do that? Additional license, yes. Oh, wow. Didn't know that. Yeah. That's a, that's not a bad thing, though. And then... <laughs> I don't even know what Iowa's is, to be honest, if they have something up here, because I don't raise anything. <laughs> Everybody here just does pigeons. Yeah, and that's, they're great. Nothing yeah. like a homing pigeon. Use it over and over. That's very yeah. That's their yeah. strength is that they're tough and that they home back in the coop. Yeah, that part's nice. You don't have to keep refreshing birds. And do you have a a person close to you that raises them, or do you have to go pretty far to get some? I can find a couple places semi-local, and then yeah. I sometimes get them through. I have a dog trainer friend south of Kansas City that helps me. Oh, nice. That's got to make it. That makes it pretty nice. What's, uh, so before we, before we hop off, what is one of your all time favorite hunting stories? Well, I got two short ones. One about two years ago, once the decline had really got steep in North Missouri, some guys about an hour away invited me over for a quail hunt. And it was just a nasty, weedy-looking CRP, and I knew the guy had a really good dog. Three of us went out went hunting, and before 11 o'clock, we'd pointed a ton of birds, and we stopped, and we'd killed 24 birds here late. Dang. And then we had lunch, and we thought, what should we do? And we shot our limit. Well, dogs were working good, and the sitting conditions were good, and it was late in the year. Just put the guns up and kept working the dogs, pointed some more coveys. And late in the day, it kind of shut off, but we went out and kept pointing birds and made a good day of it after we shot our limits. Nice. And another story I have is about my dad. We go to South Dakota, and dad's telling me he's got a little something wrong with one of his legs or something. He's going to be a little bit slowed down. And we get up there, and, we're, and he pulls out his 20-gauge side-by-side that he started shooting. I mentioned earlier. And he says, I think I'm going to try to kill a couple a day and that'll be enough. So we're there like three days and he kills 
six birds. And he gets home, and he calls me a couple weeks later, and he said, well, I didn't tell you I got a hernia. And he's in his <laughs> mid-60s. He said, so I'm going to go in and get this hernia fixed, and that's what was wrong with me in South Dakota. He called me a few weeks later, and he said, yeah, they fixed my hernia, and I had a torn groin muscle. And he said, I didn't know that. So he said, I was, I said, so you're in South Dakota, and the reason you quit early after two birds, you had a torn groin and a hernia. He's like, well, yeah. I mean, that's just him, yeah? Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, having a really good hunt, and we had four good dogs we kept rotating. was a lot of fun. And like I said, that was only a couple of years ago, but I'll never forget Dad up there <laughs> over half a day, and that's why he was done. God, tough yeah, as nails they were. Those old guys were tough. Man, they just they don't give in to anything. It's like my grandpa is uh, 80 six or seven and he's still out on the farm every day farming dealing with pigs his cattle I'm like god it's crazy just to think how much work he still does you know at that age and you look at this but, new generation they wouldn't believe it because they haven't no. seen you and i've seen no they they don't know what manual labor consists of but oh well so, well, David, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. We had a ton of fun. I love um, had some great stories in there. It was great to learn about you, to learn about uh, obviously your your dad and which kind of drove you to uh, some of the bird dogs and just how you've taken the passion of you know making the breeds better and getting the right dogs and traveling around to find new birds, new states and. Um, Hats off to you, man. It's well, great. Thank you. Hopefully, maybe New Mexico or Oklahoma, maybe out of state next fall. Oh, yeah. New Mexico would be fun. That'd be a yeah, good state. I think so. Bob White's and Scaly's mix would be fun. Yeah, for sure. So, again, thank you and best of luck to you next year. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Flush them and dust yeah. them. Yeah, thank you.